This episode is sponsored by Balsamic. Founders, product managers, marketers, and developers have always had great product ideas, but lacked a quick and easy way to express them. Enter Balsamic Wireframes. You just drag, drop, and arrange pre-made UI elements on the screen. You'll be amazed at the great screens you'll be able to create in just a few minutes. Not sure where to start? They can also teach you. Bring your wireframes to your collaborators and see how quickly you'll get on the same page and reduce risk by testing them on potential customers. Balsamic Wireframes is available on the web as a desktop app or integrated with Google Drive, Confluence, and Jira. Try it free today at balsamic.com. Hello, hello, everyone. This is your host, Akhil Jabbar, and welcome back to another episode of SaaS District. In today's episode, we'll be talking about designing SaaS products that deliver better user value and drive user growth. Today, we have our guest, Peter Loving, joining us. Peter is a software designer, coach, and consultant who works with SaaS companies to build better products, making UI and UX improvements that drive growth and wow users. He's the founder of UserActive, an agency that designs meaningful tech products. They are inspired by a mission to help uh, to help tech founders build products that enrich the lives of users, doing this by applying critical thinking, creative talents, and product strategy to solve real business challenges. So welcome, Peter. Super excited to have you on the SaaS District Show today. Hi, Akhil. Thanks for having me. I'm a fan of the podcast. So excited to be here too. Awesome, awesome. Thank you. I'm actually also a fan of your your Facebook group. I'm part of that, so um, you know, been 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 part of that for a while. So glad we can finally oh, connect. Great. Yeah, great. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. I didn't realize you were you were in there yet. So um, we'll have to do a live and get you in there too. Uh, to to promote the SaaS District podcast. Huh? Sure, absolutely. That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know, a lot of people listening in were SaaS founders, SaaS marketers, designers. Um, you know, that's your expertise. I'd love to learn learn more. You know, if I'm Maybe let's start off with, you know, if I'm looking to build out a new design for my, 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 my dashboard or my SaaS product, can you walk us through how does the, you know, the fundamentals of the process of creating a value-based product dashboard look like for you? Yeah, uh, dashboards are an interesting topic. It's one of the things that we look at quite often um, as an area to make, make good improvements in when, when starting on new SaaS uh, project that we're designing. And um, one of the reasons for this is that it's uh, one of the, the, usually one of the main screens that users encounter when they, when they sign up for a, for a SaaS. So it plays a really big role in the first impression. And often I find it's overlooked. So uh, what we, what we like to do is rethink that dashboard to make sure that it represents uh, an overview of the product. Right. So what we're looking to do there is provide the user with uh, an overview of account activity, but also highlight all of the value in this product. Right. There's a lot of value usually in a software product that can be hidden or buried within menus. Um, but surfacing information on the dashboard is a great way to let users who are new to the product see it uh, and become aware of it for the first time. Um, so the, the process for this, we usually go through four or five steps, but we review. Um, first of all, we look at user profiles, right? So usually software doesn't just have one user profile. It will have 
typically four or five different kinds of users. Um, so we we think about all of each of these separately. You know, we want to make sure that we've considered their needs and requirements for their specific role that they have with the software. Um, and the next thing we want to think about is a contextual experience. So how do we make this uh, dashboard contextual so that each time you log in, you're seeing something new, an update, it's changing, you know, it feels like a living and breathing experience because you're now seeing activity from other people on your team, what's been happening since the last time you logged logged in. So mm. that that's quite quite a nice thing that, that brings users coming back, you know, bring the, brings them back for more sessions because sometimes they'll they'll log in and, and see updates that way too. Um we look at uh, how the navigation supports user journeys and gets users quite often those journeys start from the dashboard. So we'll design out uh, goal-based navigation. And then we also uh, show key metrics that support a user's desired outcome. So every user signs up for a SaaS product with an ideal outcome in mind. And um, one of the great things that you can do on the dashboard is keep reminding them of how they're doing against that ideal outcome. You know, are they reaching? Mm. Are they hitting it? And if and if they are, the feedback can be really great because it reinforces the fact that this product is achieving those outcomes that they were looking for. So that's mm. that's one way we we help show ROI, like right there in, in the dashboard. So it's quite a powerful screen and it's one I like to talk about a lot for those reasons. Uh, and we just, you know, those are the key things we think about and then we go through the a process of uh, redesigning that experience, what it should look like and, and how it should, uh, you know, be. Yeah, it sounds counterintuitive. I like that, right? When you sign in, you actually probably, you know, probably people try to minimize, right, as much as possible, maybe on that dashboard. And then, but they put, they try to hide everything in the screens and they think people, you know, should be able to figure out. But yeah, I think if you have it laid out nicely when you first log in, uh, nicely organized, nicely easy to follow, and, uh, you know, having that some kind of progress bar or checkbox is that what you like to have there? Or what do you suggest on, you know, people to show progress? Well, yeah, that might relate to uh, onboarding, right? So say you have mm -hmm. a flow that shows progress of, of the onboarding of a, of a new user. Uh, that might be something that we show. But when thinking about the dashboard, I, I like to think of it as a kind of utilitarian uh, standalone screen, right? Mm -hmm. We might have some something that relates to uh, onboarding. Um, but did you mean a progress bar relating to some metrics or... or, or okay. Yeah, like so. I mean, if somebody you know who actually uses the tool, who completes it, right? You, you mentioned that helps you know improve ROI. Is there something um, you like for people to help visualize that they're completing it and using the tool as it should be? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you can show there are things really neat things you can do with that. So mm -hmm. you can show progress. Uh, two examples that spring to mind for this is one where uh, we worked with a uh, renting software for landlords. Um, this one shows how much. Um, of all of the properties in their portfolio for that month where they are in terms of rent paid and rent outstanding for the month. So you kind of get a progress in terms of a monetary uh, progress that way. And another good example of this was um, a software that it was called AdZuma and it, and it, and it basically improves the efficiency of ads Um you know, of uh, PPC and, and social ad spend. It optimizes those campaigns. And then it actually shows on the dashboard 
time and money saved from by using Adzuma. So mm. it's just a really neat way to give that feedback in it and it validates the product over and over again in the user's right. mind. Nice. I like those examples. Um, and when it comes to, you know, UI, UX and, and product design, how, what's kind of the relation, you know, relationship between these two? And then from there, how do you bridge that gap when actually building for the end user, right? Because as a designer, you like to build something that looks good, you know, nice UI, seems like good UX, but then it may not be, you know, right for the end user. How do you, how do you bridge that gap? Yeah, so um, the relation between UI and UX uh, and product design, uh, the way I think of that is um, UI and UX describes the interface and experience design that can be largely attributed to web design in general. Okay, it can be even broader than web design, like machine interfaces with anything with a screen, right? Mm -hmm. um, and... Uh, you can get uh, designers that might categorize themselves as UI and UX designers, but they might just focus on things like websites and landing pages, these kind of elements. Um, and I see product design as a, uh, a broader discipline, which is largely associated with problem solving in the context of, of meeting a, a market need. So you're, you're coming to the market with... Um, uh, you're, you're observing problems, you're seeing problems and thinking about how you might solve them and what that product might be like, how it might come to life. Um, and, and that's quite a big process that, that actually has quite a few more disciplines involved in it. So I'd kind of see any, any good product designer, digital product designer, will, will have UI and UX skills, but I think they'll also have some other skills in their in their kind of you know how would you describe that in their toolbox right mm. um and they would be around um understanding how to deliver value to to a user of a product you know what what are the tasks these users uh need need to perform what's the best way to enable them to perform them um, how to deliver value, whether that's saving time, reducing cost, making it easier to, you know, to, to complete work. Um, so, so I see that, that that's maybe the where you, you know how the disciplines relate. Mm -hmm. um, but then you also mentioned um, bridging the gap when building for the end user, right? Yeah. Um, and I think. I think what you're, yeah, that that's the part where you're really understanding the value that you're delivering, and and then and then shaping an experience that that delivers that value. It can be right. hard to art articulate, but um, I guess it's more of a, of a functional, uh, uh, kind of functional design process. Right. So someone like you know more product design is more you know in in the shoes of the user understands kind of a more of a holistic level and then maybe the the ui ux designer you know who can take that that kind of thinking and map and then you know what is the problem we're solving and then you know build that out into actual a uh, design right and then you know kind of work together right versus you know all in one yeah and quite, you know you find that the um the labels are quite interchangeable you get you get product designers uh and ui ux designers uh considering them that that to be the same thing you know and, and in a lot mm -hmm. of cases it, it it is but i just think product design as a trend has grown dramatically over the last uh you know say five to ten years in tech yeah. whereas yeah. um you know back when i studied i studied product design in university but that was physical products we were designing things like uh 
iPhones or, you know, consumer gadgets. And mm. that the disciplines from that field have translated over to tech. That's how that's how I've kind of observed it cool. um, in, in these kind of recent recent years. And, and when it comes to, you know, tech and SaaS specifically, what, what have you seen typically as areas that, you know, when you log into to a, a you know, SaaS, you know, companies, you know, UI, you actually look at their, their dashboard or their business. What are things that you see that are quick areas of improvement uh, when building out their designs and maybe you'd uh, recommend to them that will generate the quickest results? And maybe so people listening in, maybe they can try it themselves. Yeah, so um, what, one of the th- things that, People say to me a lot. So, it, um, if you're you have a SaaS, you're a SaaS founder or working in a SaaS team, you you've been working on your product quite you know intensively and maybe over a long period of time. So, um, one of the things that I hear SaaS founders saying to me when we start our conversations is that they they would like a fresh pair of eyes on on the product. Exactly. And I think the reason for that is because when you're working so deeply in something for a long time, you can't, you lose that perspective, the ability to see the product the way that a brand new user seeing it for the first time sees it. So um, it helps to have uh, conversations with prospects or new users, um, people like that who are having their first impression of the product and, and getting their insight and observing you know, uh, their experience or their reaction. Um, and then areas that I I often see that, that have a lot of room for improvement are, uh, do relate also to that first experience. So onboarding is a big one here. Um, and it's talked about a lot in SaaS, but um, there are common issues that I see quite a lot. Like um, one is just reducing friction in the onboarding um, experience. Um, if you have something like a complex integration, how it's about stepping back, observing the the journey of what needs to be done, and then trying to simplify it and reduce any effort or reduce as much of the effort or thinking the user has to do to get through this process into experiencing the product. So. Mm. That's quite a common one. And and other other tricks that we do in onboarding are, um, you know, at the very beginning of the process, psychologically frame the experience um, in terms of the future benefits that, that this user is going to get. So say they, they sign up, they, they start their onboarding. You might ask um, one or two questions to find a bit out a bit of information out about this user, what their needs are, what kind of category they are. Um, and then you might just highlight key features or desired results. Uh, you know, hey, welcome to this CRM. Um, here are three of the, of the big features that we're really proud of and the kind of results you can get. Um, what happens when we do that? We're, we're kind of like framing psychologically a future benefit, which the the concept of it is that it helps helps them when they get to the friction part of onboarding. It helps push them through that because they've got a driver, they've got a bit more motivation. Hmm. So we kind of front load it with value, push them through friction, and then at the end, um, we just like reemphasize or, or celebrate, you, you know, that 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 experience that they've gotten through, and then and then start 
trying to deliver that value as quickly as possible. So mm. I think I think on, onboarding is is usually a big one, and it's probably one of the ones to hit first because if you can um, have a have a you know a low resource requirement but but big improvement in the onboarding um you can really impact metrics or conversions like your free trials or upgrade things like this you can you can see a big reward in them so sometimes there's some of the kind of lower impact i should say lower resource things but they have a big impact so so when it comes to you know talking about that point which is you know quantifying it and, and you're building metrics and you know um, measuring it besides making the product a little bit you know, more intuitive easier to use um, by making these these improvements on onboarding and product design um, you know other than you know how, you know better customer experience how, how do you see a kind of increased retention and maybe reduced churn as, as a part of the the overall system there yeah um, um, in terms of the kind of metrics that you measure the the tools that you use for it or, or maybe if you can share any you know experiences or you know things that you've seen with SaaS companies by making some changes and how has that impacted you know churn or retention? Yeah, um, well, I have a really good example of that. This was a CRM that we we redesigned and we we started with the dashboard. Uh, okay. This is one of the reasons that I speak about the power of the dashboard. We um, saw that well, we noticed that the dashboard had quite a, a weak design. It didn't really show uh, information that was very valuable to the to the user. Um, it kind of had, and this, this can be quite common, I think, for listeners who have a, a technical product or a technical team. If you, if you feel that your dashboard is kind of just a place where a few pieces of data have been dumped that are from the product, but haven't really been thought about deeply, um, we had that kind of dashboard uh, experience to redesign. Um, and what we did was rethink about it in the process uh, that I mentioned earlier and m- monitored the results. You know, once we rolled out the new design, we monitored the results. And we we actually impacted about 700K of, of uh, pounds, this is British pounds, right, in, in the difference of upgrades over the over the like the next two three year period because um what we what we started observing was that we increased the amount of free trial to paid conversions by 46 percent um which was pretty pretty impressive yeah um it was more than i expected and when we measured the average contract value of uh the user accounts was like three thousand pounds the lifetime value was around twelve thousand um and when, once we did the maths on that increase it, it came up to like a really really big big number so hmm. um it kind of validated the work and uh from then on it's been it been a case of okay well, where else can we make improvements in the product that are going to have that kind of impact nice and can you share for listeners listening in who want to run a similar experiment, what are some you know tools that you guys use, analytics or KPIs or metrics that you guys keep track of uh, and measure to, to see what the real impact is for the you know customer growth um, from the changes you're, you're making, right? Like I know from a website perspective, you know, there's a lot of conversion rate optimization tools you can use. How does it work on, on this side? Yeah, it's, it's pretty... Well, for this, ex, for this um, example I just described, the team actually built 
custom analytics into their software. So I find that's that can be pretty common with uh, mm-hmm. companies we're working with. They will have um, uh, just built a way to track metrics that matter to them, and they have they'll have an admin dashboard uh, that they use. So we'll discuss some metrics that they can track. Um, otherwise, it would be something like Mixpanel or Heap, and um, we've even seen this done with Google Analytics. Um, but the kind of metrics, you know, they're actually, sometimes people expect a complicated answer to this, but they're actually quite simple metrics, right? They're like um, con- conversion rate, free trial to, pu- uh, free trial to paid. Uh, they might be, we, we track things like utilization. So mm. how many times are users logging in and how long are their sessions over that period? Um, we might track some behaviors like how, how long does it take to invite additional users or seats to their account? Um, and if they do that, typically how many are added? And then when we're designing user journeys or flows, um, it would be looking at the, uh, the a kind of goal-based uh, data, like um, how many users complete the goal or complete the journey, how how much time that takes, and how many drop off, where where do they drop off in that process? Mm. Um, so yeah, it's 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 those kind of those kind of metrics. And then obviously you've got your classic SaaS metrics like uh MRR, net new MRR, uh churn, lifetime value. And when you when you start to calculate using those uh those metrics with the data that you're measuring, that's when you can start to see uh, the impact of design work, you know, start monitoring that impact. Right. And in terms of the, on the usage side, are you using, you know, tool like Mixpanel or is there something else you recommend? Yeah. Um, Mixpanel or Heap. Mm-hmm. Those are your favorite? Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. It's just the, the, the two, the two kind of, I guess they're the industry leading, leading ones. Pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Where, where do you think, uh, kind of going forward in the, into the you know near future, you know, looking looking forward, what do you think will be some big areas of changes in UX design? And you know, I don't know if it's AI or maybe what are some more important skills that designers should be learning now to be ready for the future? Yeah, now um, design systems are, are, are like the the hot topic in, in product design, um, and I think they'll become more sophisticated, um, but learning how to use them. Um, so I, I work with a lot of designers and see um, a variety of methods of working. Um, we exclusively use Figma now. Um, and, and, and Figma is pretty, pretty hot as well in the industry. So most designers are using Figma or thinking about moving over to it. Mm-hmm. And um, just getting really good with using components uh, and design systems, um, systems that also have layouts that are defined. So when you start moving your Figma, uh, the Figma components around elements within within a layout, um, it rearranges and adjusts. So you kind of have this fluid design system. Uh, so we're starting to do that, and it really helps to keep things consistent. And it definitely helps when you're handing off to developers. Um, and I, I just think design systems will get more and more sophisticated. They'll, they'll potentially have more um, 
code behind them or front-end code. They might be integrated a bit more with uh, JavaScript libraries. Um, and I think, you, you know, we're seeing in the industry the gap between design and development closing a bit, right? We're right. seeing a lot of no-code apps. Right. Uh, and just from observing my, my Facebook group, the SaaS founders group, there's like no-code apps launching every day. I've seen just hundreds this year. So hmm. I think that's going to become quite sophisticated to the point where um, the, the, the the crossover will, will get wider and wider and, and you'll be working with design and code um, a bit more, hmm. more integrated. But but definitely I think um, things that... that, that, that you know, excite me or seem seem quite futuristic are um, how interface design will relate to virtual reality, you know, as we get mm. more kind of virtual spaces, uh, how elements will be designed for for those kind of experiences. Right. Um, branding, branded experiences too in those spaces. So that will be interesting. Yeah, yeah. So exciting times, right? The metaverse coming out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Peter, what are some, you know, if, uh, I'm a SaaS founder, you know, we always, you know, maybe we, we don't know where to start, right? We're looking from scratch or we're trying to improve our, our, our design. Um, so we look at, you know, some of our competitors or other SaaS companies for inspiration. What are maybe some of your top three or five, maybe favorite SaaS companies that you love, their design, their UI that you admire, maybe you suggest some founders to check out and, and get some inspiration from? Yeah, um, three that I really love. Um, We've been looking at a few recently and ones that jump out are, are product board. Um, and I think for product board, they almost uh, need to show great UI and UX because they're, you know, it's a platform for uh, product management and, and uh, you know, everything around managing your, your own SaaS product. Uh, so you know they would they they'd want to be leaders in in you know leading uh, in terms of great design and product management, but they certainly do a great job. Definitely a really kind of modern, friendly, light interface that has so many different interactions that are all in context of what you're doing. So mm. um, it's really interesting to see how they treat different interactions depending on where you are. Um, on what you can do. So I definitely say product board. Um, I think another great one is Airtable. Um, you know, that's really popular now. People are even building apps with Airtable. So um, that that's that's got a lot of hidden elements that are only you only see them when you need them or when you're interacting with a certain field. And every different field type has a really cool UI of its own that's just perfect for what you're doing there. So um, if you want, these are really good examples of if, if you have a complex product and you want to see how a great product team thinks about the very details of different interactions, these are great products to, to take a look at. Take a free oh. trial and play around with. Yeah, yeah then, I'm familiar with the Airtable. Airtable is great. Yeah, Airtable yeah, Airtable's really neat because at face value, it doesn't look massively complex. It looks like a spreadsheet. But mm -hmm. the more you get into it, you realize, oh my God, the power behind it and, yeah. and the amount of interface elements that you have to, to work with. Mm. Um, and I think a third one, would a good example would be Notion because 
Uh, Notion has a very kind of stripped back, minimal white uh, feel. It almost looks understated. Mm-hmm. But when when you start, um, you know, the first time you start using Notion, it becomes apparent that everything you're doing is right there within the document workspace. Mm-hmm. Um, so you almost have a blank canvas. Uh, and even the onboarding is on a new sheet, you know, document. And then you realize that you can start working right in that onboarding guideline instruction. Before you know it, you can have a project that you've built right on that on that sheet. So every work, every kind of sheet is a workspace of its own. It feels like the interface is embedded right there in, in the product. The way they do that is, is really neat. It's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm a big fan of Notion. Actually, I started using it about I think like two or three years ago when they, they were kind of getting hot, and then um, I think I hit a roadblock and I didn't really want to pay for it because they had like you know, a thousand. You can only use like a thousand blocks or something like that. Um, but recently, I came back. You know, somebody somebody's been mentioning it recently, and I came back, and now they have unlimited you know pages and blocks for you know. Just, I, I like to just organize my thoughts and you know keep things. But yeah, I, I love the power of it. So um, definitely recommend people to check out Notion if you're not already using it. Um, do you use yeah, yourself that, or what's your favorite? Um, no, see, that those three are, are, are ones that I don't actually use them day to day, but qu- quite often I'm reviewing or in, in our team here, we're reviewing, uh, you know, well-known SaaS products, looking for the, you know, examples of leading trends within in the industry. Mm. Um, but I, I, I'm, Notion is very broad in what it can do. Uh, but we've... I tend to use tools that have very specific tasks for us within within our work here. So hmm. um, I'm using teamwork for project management. Okay. You know, and I've even heard of people using Notion for for project management. You know, it can do it can do all of these things. That's right. Um, but, but yeah, um, I think of of those three, I, I think I, I like them all equal. I think they're all great for different reasons. Yeah, yeah, I agree. <laughs> cool. Um, this has been this has been fantastic, Peter. Um, so we're going to get to the the fun part of the interview, which is more of the you know, personal rapid fire questions. So uh, maybe just you know, quick you know, minute share a quick background. You know, what, what's been your background, past ventures up until why you decided to build you know user active? Um, yeah. So like I mentioned earlier, I've always been interested in design, and I studied product design at university. Mm-hmm. I freelanced for a bunch of years, worked on a number of different agencies in London. Um, got uh, some exposure to working on SaaS product projects there. Over the years, uh, my freelancing kind of grew and I and I decided to uh, start trying to form an agency, which is a typical route, but it's it's very difficult to go. It's a very different experience being a freelancer or an agency. Mm-hmm. And this was a full service agency in London. We did just heaps of websites. Uh, we did software. Um, we did... We designed even uh, websites for the government. We designed the prime minister's personal website in in the UK. Cool. So we had some really cool projects. But um, after maybe five years running that agency, I um, I decided to wind it down and and uh, rethink the agency and focus really on on my passion, which was product design. So mm. that's how I got back to just focusing on product design. And I, I, you know, that's when I I founded User Active to just literally focus on SaaS products and, uh, you know, designing great UX and UI for SaaS. 
And how, how's that transition, right? Because I, I guess, you know, there's, there's quite a few, you know, agency owners who listen in as well. Maybe they're more broad right. and they think about niching it, niching down to a certain, you know, you know, type of industry or certain just one type of offering. Um, you know, how has that affected, you know, one, maybe your own mental uh, health and how you, you came to, you know, you know, showed up to work and then you know, how did that affect your, your overall business, would you say? Yeah, um, it's, it, de- it really helps. I mean, I, I didn't find it sustainable to, to have a full service digital agency where, you, you know, you're changing um, every project, your, your kind of whole mental space onto, you know, something new or potentially different. Right. So uh, that takes a lot of adjustment. Um, and it's just very inefficient to, you know, you can't really build a scalable service. So for for niching, for other people who are listening, I, I think people are, are frightened of niching when they first do it. But um, once you, you make the jump, yeah, you have a lot of work to do to uh, kind of get traction in your niche. But actually, that's how you're going to grow. And once once you kind of get confirmation of that, you realize that niching into something like SaaS is actually still a massive niche. So even within SaaS, you, you kind of need to go deeper, right? What 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 can you get known for? What what is the thing that you can focus on there? So I would I would highly recommend niching down on the on the industry as well as the service. Um, and and that's one of the things I've been doing with User Active is we've we've kind of productized the the model that we run, which is just delivering design sprints. So we do bi-weekly design sprints. There's a design stand-up every two weeks and we run a sprint where we we manage a kind of design backlog and a roadmap. And then we do the sprint, deliver and review the work, and then we run on on to the next sprint. So mm-hmm. it's a very repeatable and it not only makes it easier for us to manage this kind of workflow, but it's a lot easier for the, the client to, you know, to check in, follow what's being done, and uh, the experience is better for them. So for any any agencies listening, I'd, I'd highly recommend that. And the beauty of, of working in SaaS for me is obviously I've seen how, how software companies run that subscription model and how they operate as a product. So there have been some transferable learnings that I could bring into the service, you know, industry mm. world. And, and, and I think that's, there's a lot that, you know, the service people can benefit from in that alone. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah, I mean, even though, you know, I started in internet based businesses, you know, buying online websites, but then, you know, niching down and, you know, going now, you know, B2B SaaS companies, you know, so B2B, you know, and then narrows it down. Uh, and then, you know, we have a specific revenue range, right? We invest and do consulting with, you know, 500K to 5 million and that's it, right? So it sounds like, you know, scary because you're saying no to all these other opportunities. But um, yeah, it's been, it's, it ends up being a blessing in disguise, right? Because then you, you attract exactly who you want to work with and who you actually help and, you know, ends up being better fit for everybody in the long term. Yeah. And you, and, and two, two other things that happen is that like you get all this transferable knowledge and skill from every single client. That's right. Um, so each new client benefits from this because uh, you've got examples and references you can draw from. And then the other the other thing is that the, the opportunities that you said no to, you start to realize how, you know, previously when you were saying yes to them, they were actually like just pulling you in different directions, creating kind of a lot of conflict in the way you work and, you know, mm. mentally adjusting to to each project. So those two things start to happen. Yeah. 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 
Agree. It sounds like we both experienced those. And for sure, yeah. I think yeah, yeah everybody goes down the agency route. You know, they want to do everything and anything, but yeah, they quickly realize that it's not sustainable, right? Yeah, yeah it's tough. Yeah, yeah. Cool, Peter. Um, what's one piece of advice you wish you had known and would tell your, let's say, a twenty-five-year-old self if you can go back in time? Um, I've got so many actually, but uh, mm-hmm. definitely uh, one of them is to be more confident in in the dream or vision that you have for what you want to do develop more confidence about it and and commit more to it um so one of the things that i that happens to me and i think it happens a lot to to service-based businesses is that they sometimes um think the grass is greener on the product side and they want to move over to SaaS or launch a SaaS. so there's there's a temptation to do that um, but, uh, I, I found that s- sticking with what, what I am trained and have become really great at has, has had other benefits. You know, one of them is that I get to work on, you know, hundreds of different SaaS products and the variety and the insight into the different industries is, is just a total bonus. So, um, just develop the confidence and commitment more. And one of the things that helped me do that is recently this year is to join uh, a coaching academy. So I joined an agency coaching academy, which has really helped. It's built me in those two areas. So so I think uh, fundamental is getting kind of advice, coaching and, and guidance. I think that's a really, a really great way to build up the commitment, confidence and, and focus on what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And maybe tied to that, that adds to that answer of how you said, what are, what are some of the biggest challenges you're currently facing in order to continue to grow user active? Meaning, you know, what keeps you up at night or what was it that, you know, maybe, you know, triggered that you might have to, you know, get some guidance or join this community and get some help? Yeah. Um, so things that might keep me up recently is, um, you know, the talent, you know, finding talent and uh, also you know, keeping talented designers um, engaged, excited, and and on board with with the mission that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's quite challenging because I think recently there's been a big ton of uh, shift in the way people are working. There's a lot. You know, I was advertising recently in the market for for designer and. Um, tons of people are job hunting. There's a lot of vacancies. It seems to me to be this way. And I don't know if it's because COVID has changed, you know, more people working virtually. There are more opportunities to work virtually now. So I think that's shifted the market Mm -hmm. a bit. Um, And the demand for design, I think, has been increasing. So it's quite challenging, Um, especially if you're you're a small agency, you might have... um, you might be competing against, you know, VC-backed tech companies. And so that that can be quite a challenge. Yeah. So, yeah, I definitely like, say, hiring and retaining great talent. And then um, for me, generally, it's like the complexity of clients' products. We might be running sprints on three different products at, at a given time, and there's a lot of complexity in each. So I'll have little uh problems that we're solving or design interactions that are going going through my head and uh mm. sometimes they they might you know nuances of these projects might might stay on my mind for a bit 
Uh, and the other, the other thing might just be your general day-to-day, like managing things like marketing and lead gen on top of all of your day-to-day work. So, so I think these are pr- pretty common. Yeah. So, are you guys hiring right now? Are, um, you know, locally, or are you virtual? Are you all remote? Um, yeah, a combination, really. But uh, yeah, just hired a new designer re- recently, and potentially in in quarter one, twenty twenty two, we'll be hiring another one. So, um, yeah. Cool. All right. So, if anybody listening in who's in the Barcelona area or possibly remote, uh, yeah, visit visit. You know, uh, reach out to Peter and see. It might be a good fit. Really? Great. Yeah, we're always um, looking for people that have specifically worked on SaaS, really good uh, UI UX designers who've got three to five years of designing SaaS. Perfect. Sounds good. Um, Peter, when it comes to resources, who or what are some of the best resources? This can be books, it can be you know people, mentors, or maybe people you follow in the space who you'd say have been instrumental to your success over these last few years. Yeah, there's, there's quite a few. Um, in the space, in, in the SaaS space or the kind of agency space. So I always find myself following these two. Mm. And one one is one's to stay on top in the trends in SaaS and one's to one's to almost, you know, self-improvement and development in mm. running service-based businesses. Either, either or whoever has been, you know, who you think has been most influential. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, well, for for me, um, really good books that that have made a big impact on me. Uh, Mike Michalowicz has written some great books. Um, and he he wrote one called The Pumpkin Plan, which was all about growing the how how farmers grow the biggest pumpkins in these kind of like farming competitions. Um, and they do it by cutting off all the smaller pumpkins and letting all of the energy go to, you know, supporting the growth of the biggest pumpkin on the on the vine. Mm. And he made an analogy to the business. You know, especially for a certain, well, you could think of this as an analogy to for software features, you know, mm-hmm. um, being more selective with features rather than developing lots. Um, but the analogy for me is, you know, honing your service into one service that really satisfies the market need and, and not trying to do too many different offerings. Um and he had another great one called Fix This Next, which is awesome. So it kind of gives you step-by-step what to work on your business. Built to Sell is one that was really great for me, which is another service-based model. And there's a book I really like called Anything You Want by Derek Sivers. Okay. Um, which is about shaping your business into something that fits you. You know, it doesn't have to be a mold of uh, what a corporate image might be. Of of how you you might perceive your business, what it needs to be, you you can shape it to be something that will fit. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a fantastic book, right? A little a little little book, but uh, super powerful. Yeah. Big fan of Derek Sivers. Yeah, you know it. Yeah, yeah great. Yeah, yeah, it's good. It's good. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, th- those are ones that I've particularly enjoyed myself. Cool, cool. Yeah, um, yeah. Those are a fantastic, you know, resource people to check out. Now I love that thinking, right? Of like. People think, you know, the more the better and you spread yourself out and spread your energy, your time. But the idea of focusing on, you know, one or two things and giving that all your energy, I think there's this immense power, right? And, and you'll see the, I think typically if you invest in one thing, you'll see kind of the exponential versus, you know, kind of half-assing, you know, a bunch of little things. And then, you know, it, it just never goes anywhere, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and I think that there's quite a lot of business books with this topic, you know, there's one, the one, one thing, one, the one yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah. And you see this theme, once you become, you know, aware of this theme, you see it in a lot of spaces. And then, you know, after you've come across a lot, you're like, of course, this is a no brainer, right? This is like, right. you need to, 
But I think what people struggle with is finding the, the, the thing that will be successful. So they're trying lots at the beginning. Uh, this can be the same with launching MVPs for a SaaS idea or uh, trying trying out new features in the CRM that you're building. Right. You know, this That's kind right. of thing. Peter, what does uh, success mean to you today? Whether that's personally, business, financial life, there's no right answer. Yeah, so um, I think definitely happiness. So I, I'm trying to build a business that um, I will enjoy working in for the long term. So mm. that, that's the beauty of, uh, you know, f- finding a passion for design is that running a design agency, I'm always engrossed in, in, in the work I enjoy. So I want to kind of make that sustainable, um, do that for, for the long term and, and be happy, you know, a manageable lifestyle that's not going, going to be overwhelming or, you know, um, where I feel like the, the workload is, is just too great, which can happen in the, in, in the agency world. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and main, maintaining that, creating a place that people really enjoy working in and a team that people love to work in mm-hmm. uh, with a strong culture and and delivering value to the people that are our, it's our mission to serve, you know. So um, there's a great sense of accomplishment and satisfaction when we we hand off designs later, we see them released into a product and it's like, wow, that that process where we've worked on this thing, it's been hard work, it's a lot of problem solving. We see it live, we see, you know, how people are benefiting from it and we see it in the real, you know, the real world. It's a right. really satisfying feeling. So, you know, just, yeah. just you know, managing to do more of these kind of things that are rewarding. Love it. Love it. Actually seeing the fruit of your your ideas and your concept and your, your hard work actually being used in the real world. That's awesome. Yeah. 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 Cool. Um, yeah, thank, thank you so much, Peter. This has been great. I really appreciate you jumping on SAS District Show today. Um, you know, final question, anything you want to add or where can founders get in touch with you and learn more about you and, and UserActive? Yeah, sure. Um, so our website is useractive.io. Um, I also have a field guide, which is called Software Users Love, the field guide. Mm-hmm. Um, that just talks about um, how to apply you, UI and UX to design features, user journeys, and flows that can make a big impact on the metrics that matter in a SaaS uh, product. So if anyone's uh, listening and, and is thinking about you know, how they can introduce product improvements that will drive growth, uh, and you'd like a copy of that, you can just email me at peter at useractive.io, and I'll, and I'll send that over to you. Um, yeah, and I suppose the Facebook group as well, which is um, SaaS Founders Build and Scale Facebook group. I think there's uh, around nearly 11,000 uh, SaaS founders in there. So yeah. you can also join that if, if you're looking for a group to to connect with other founders. Okay, awesome. We'll add the, uh, your email, the Facebook group, and that link to the, the show notes for people to check out. And uh, yeah, please join the Facebook group. It'd be great to see you guys there. Thank you. Thank you, Peter, once again. appreciate you jumping on. Thanks, Akil. Thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you all for watching this episode and joining SAS District today. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit the bell for future episodes where we interview top leaders in the SAS industry. If you're a SAS company looking to grow and unlock the true value of your business, get in touch with us at Horizon Capital and myself or one of our consultants will provide a free assessment 
to help you get there and hit your goals. If you have any feedback or suggestions for this podcast, please comment down below and help us improve our content for you all. Thanks again and see you on the next one.